Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that samples as much as it can of the experiences of cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program we have news stories including Toyota gives their side to the electrification debate. To get delivery drivers to be considerate, should we charge them per minute they delay traffic? Making Uber and other ride services go electric and the Mazda 2 refresh. An example of the struggles to keep passenger car sales alive. And in feature stories, we get the gang together to discuss the Rob Roy Hill Climb revival and the new Suzuki S-Cross. And we talk to a truck driver about the differences in driving a standard rig versus a motorsports image-leading equipment and comfort delivery trucks. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. So to start this program, which was originally broadcast on the 4th of February 2023, we'll start with the news. Toyota has made a statement about new electric vehicles it intends to bring into the Australian market. In part, they said, Toyota Australia plans to launch at least three EVs in three years, starting with the BZ4X SUV later this year, with Australia likely to see more than 30 all-electric newcomers in 2023, Toyota's announcement is still seen as a cautious or even behind-the-times approach. Their statement does not mention plug-in hybrids nor any specific reference to heavy polluters such as large SUVs or utes. The company said electrified vehicles, including hybrid electric and other technologies, would account for more than half of its sales in 2025. Toyota is proud of its pioneering push in hybrid vehicles, starting with the Prius, and it is likely that their performance with electrification will be dominated by hybrids, at least in the short term. Several years ago, at the launch of a new Corolla model, which included a hybrid option, we spoke to Toyota Australia's Vice President of Sales, Marketing and Franchise Operations, Sean Hanley. When we first brought Prius to market, it was all about the technology. It was about the early adopters, the intenders, the visionaries. So it took on a role as a technological leader for Toyota, albeit, of course, technology's moved, you know, to 20-fold since then. But it was the start of the journey on hybrid. We then launched it through Camry. We've now launched it through Corolla again, uh, but now we've broadened the Corolla hybrid range from one model to three. We're going to launch RAV4 next year with a hybrid, and we've got a couple more thereafter we're going to launch with hybrid. Their recent statement did say, however, that by 2030, Toyota globally planned to release 30 new EVs and lift EV sales to 3.5 million a year worldwide, investing 8 trillion yen, that's about 87 billion Australian dollars, in the shift to zero carbon vehicles over that period. Transportation and Traffic Analyst Charles Komanoff released Taming New York City's e-delivery gridlock, a report commissioned by New York City Council that proposes charging package delivery vehicles, such as those operated by Amazon, UPS and FedEx, a per-minute charge for the time they occupy the city's most congested streets and curb spaces. The report estimates that travel delays caused by delivery trucks occupying road and curb space while delivering e-commerce parcels cost New Yorkers time worth more than $400 million annually. 
the proposed changes would be levied on the delivery vehicles carrying e-commerce parcels rather than on individual packages or specific customers or delivery destinations. In order to best address the vehicle's congestion causation, charges would vary by geographical area, by time of day and day of week, and by the vehicle's physical size. The release of the report coincides with Council's vote on the first round of bills in its package of legislation encouraging smart, safe and sustainable deliveries. The bills would create a pilot program for sustainable micro-distribution centres, codify new regulations about spaces for truck loading and unloading to ensure that they are not blocked by construction or placard parking, and dramatically expand the amount of loading space dedicated to loading zones citywide. Eric Adams has been Mayor of New York City for a year. In his recent State of the City address, he said... And it's really wrong, especially when the technology we need to change is is already here. That's why we are committed to reducing building emissions to create a healthier and more sustainable city. We are also electrifying our city vehicle fleet. We're going to go even further, requiring for hire vehicles to do the same. We are announcing today that Uber and Lyft will be required to have a zero emission fleet by 2030. That's that's zero emission for over 100,000 vehicles in our streets. While activists speak of the moral imperative for considering global climate change, which has the backing of the great majority of scientists who work in the area, some of the most compelling reasons for change in behaviour come from local policies. Local issues such as pollution in our cities, including the impact on the health of children, are realities that are easier to relate to rather than the complex scenarios of global weather. Making mandatory EVs a part of operating a taxi service is likely to change the dynamics of the current owner-driver arrangements and could hasten the development of autonomous vehicles in defined areas. And finally, Mazda has foreshadowed the launch of an upgraded Mazda 2, which they say has undergone an extensive refresh that redefines style in the segment. The light segment is the second smallest category for passenger cars in Australia and is for vehicles smaller than cars such as the Toyota Corolla and the Hyundai i30, but bigger than the compact category that is dominated by the Kia Picanto. Passenger cars on average are experiencing sales decline but are still nearly 19% of the market and last year 203,000 passenger cars were sold in Australia ranging from the tiny Picanto to sports cars and people movers. While some car manufacturers such as Nissan and Ford have put nearly all their focus on SUVs and utes, others have not given up and are prepared to refresh the design of a model to create an opportunity to keep their cars in the public mind. Mazda is taking every opportunity to promote their refreshed model, which does not go on sale until June 2023, with deliveries beginning in July 2023. Most of the quote, extensive refresh, unquote, is external colour and styling features that are applied to the same body structure as before. For example, they note that, quote, 
Up front, the fascia has been adorned with a new black or body colour grille, while the addition of a sleeker bumper design creates a streamlined new look. Unquote. There are some interior changes as well, especially for the top-spec models. Segment sales are typically driven by price, and for 2022, MG had nearly 40% of this category, and in second place was the unheralded Suzuki Bellino. And that has been the news. We have been road testing a new Suzuki. We'll get to that in a minute. But to help me through a number of issues, I have on the line our mechanical engineer, Fred Brain. G'day, Fred. Hello, Dave. And our artist in residence, Dean Oliver. G'day, Dean. Hello, David. Good to be with you. First thing of an important event. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday <laughs> Happy to birthday you. To you. <laughs> Happy birthday, dear Dino. Oh, David, stop it. Happy stop birthday it. to you. <laughs> Given that we're all of a similar age, it's not only impolite to ask how old you are, it's embarrassing because it reminds us all. Now, gentlemen, they are reviving the Rob Roy hill climb in Victoria. Now, that uh, is one of, when it first came in, was one of only three bitumen-sealed hill climbs in the world. Two were in the UK, and there was this one. This was... Uh, Conceived in 1935, and uh, the first event was in 1937. They're going to run the event a little bit like the Goodwood uh, Revival. So in order to get into the pit area and that, you have to be dressed in uh, the 40s or 50s sort of style. Uh, Dean, I just wondered whether you might have some something there that might be able to help me. Not the 40s or 50s, David, but if the challenge is to dress in um, appropriate 1960s and 70s, yes, my wardrobe would, uh, would would fit the bill pretty easily. I could probably dig up something as well, I suspect. <laughs> but if it's still if it's still if it still fits you, you should still. I mean, if it still fits you and it's wearable, still wear it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I try and send a photo to Dean, an old photo of our early rally days or that, it always comes back with, I've still got that shirt or I've still got that tie. I should remind you, David, that I still have the uh, Hyundai XL T-shirt that we got um, in, I think it would have been the late 1980s, uh, to celebrate the launch of the new, then new Hyundai XL. The T-shirt is still in wonderful condition. It was made in Australia. I suspect that there are not too many actual Hyundai XL still, still driving around. <laughs> the T-shirts outlived them. Gentlemen, let's talk about the Suzuki. Fred, what was your image of Suzuki a week or so ago prior to us going for a little jaunt? I guess Suzuki, they, they were always these sort of small offbeat-type vehicles. Things that I recollect are the Suzuki Cappuccino, the little little sports car, and the uh, Jimny, which was the uh, small four-wheel drive. You never sort of associated them with more upmarket run-of-the-mill vehicles, although they've had the Vitara. Even the Vitara was a bit of a sort of unusual vehicle in some ways because it was a smaller four-wheel drive. But they, they were renowned for having good off-road capability for their, for their size. That was stunning. Dean... Is it important for a car company, and given that their growth period in 2022, there was a 70% growth 
in the Jimny, that small little boxy four-wheel drive. Does it help to have that as a an image leader in what Fred was saying in a rather weird sense? Yes, well, I, I think so, David. The Jimny, in my, my own thinking, when I see a Jimny these days, even the new model, I mean, I just smile. It's like seeing an old Volkswagen <laughs> Beetle or something like that. It's that kind of legacy. I mean, the cars themselves, the, the early Jimnys were probably dreadful little things, but they were they were remarkably agile. They were tough as nails, easily repairable, easily modified, and there's still quite a lot of them around. And it's that kind of that kind of mythology that just sticks around with cars. And in Suzuki's case, it's a great mythology to have. It's good to see that Suzuki is maintaining it and building on it. I guess their difficulty now is they've got to step into into more mainstream sorts of vehicles, more sedan-like, SUV types, things like that. Their biggest selling car last year, I think, was the Bellino, which I didn't even think was still on the market. But that's by the by. By the way, they're not taking orders at the moment for the Jimny three-door because it would take so long to get them to deliver it, and they've got a five-door model on the horizon. We drove a different one. This is the modern approach, isn't it, uh, Dean and Fred, because it's called a cross, the S-cross, meaning a crossover somewhere between, so the theory goes, a sedan and an SUV. It's classified as a small SUV. Fred, what was the drivetrain? 1373cc four-cylinder booster jet engine, which is a direct injection turbo engine, so a turbocharged petrol engine. About 103 kilowatts and 220 newton metres, I think. Yes, yeah, that's what they were rating it at, yep. It's not huge, but then again, it's only a small SUV. Dean, did you find its performance adequate enough? Oh, very much so, David. I was quite surprised. Popping into it, uh, it, I felt uh, comfortable immediately, and uh, it kept up with the traffic remarkably well. And when pushed a little bit further on the open road, it was was enjoyably sprightly to drive. Uh, for a small turbocharged engine, it's uh, it really quite enjoyable. Yes, I enjoyed driving it, yeah. It was a very pleasant car to drive, and it was a comment I thought or made about it was that um, it's very Japanesey. You hop in it and everything sort of generally the features come to hand without a problem, so you can just kind of drive off without having to really acclimatise yourself to too much in it, and uh, everything sort of felt normal, as you would expect in a Japanese vehicle. The dials, though, Fred, you struggled with those? The one criticism I can, that, that I have of it is the um, speedo. There wasn't enough difference in colours between the needle, the numbers, and the background, mm. which made it actually quite difficult to decipher what speed you were doing at times. We had the Prestige model, which meant that it had a sunroof. You gentlemen are both over six foot. Did you fit in? Driver's seat, yep, fine. Back seat was limited somewhat. I thought it had a bit of road noise to it, which made touring in the country a bit more tiring than I think than some of the others. Dean, the look of it, a small SUV, it seems in the market that the extremities are quirky for quirky's sake versus, at the other end, blandness. Where did you think the Suzuki managed, or what do you think it managed to achieve? Oh, I think it fits nicely in the middle somewhere, David. I don't think anyone's going to be offended or angered by the, the design. 
I think they've done a good job. It's um, it's pleasant. It's inoffensive. It it doesn't have the sharp angularity of of some uh, Toyotas. <laughs> CHR. <laughs> I was actually looking at a Hyundai today, and the embellishments on the front of the car are just uh, over the top. And uh, there's sort of every every design feature that was in the book that crammed onto it. And I think, <laughs> thankfully, Suzuki have been a little bit more restrained. Uh, in going through the designer's uh, designer's uh, handbook, Fred, they don't they're not cheap. No, well, when we're looking at the pricing of it, forty over forty grand for the base base one, and then add another three and a half grand, so you're up to about forty four grand for the um, prestige. Yeah, the prestige and fitting into the um, small SUV market part of it compared to the uh, the MG, which was what was it about twenty five. Well, you can start getting MGs at two-wheel drives. The Suzuki, both of you know, both the base models S Cross and the Prestige are all-wheel drives. Right. The MG starts at about twenty-two and a half, or you know, nearly twenty-three thousand. So, but you can almost get the price of the Prestige Suzuki. You can almost get an electric MG. Right. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, you can get the size-up Toyota Rav Four hybrid mm. for a bit less than that. And, and the other point about, uh, Dean, you quite rightly mentioned, it's got a, a good range of feature, but it doesn't have lane keep assist. So it has warnings, but it won't keep there. Now, Fred, I know that's not your favourite feature, but people are coming to, um, a reasonable number of people are coming to expect it. Yeah, I suppose that's right, actually, uh, when you think it's just a warning on the dashboard, if you're used to having a or expecting that feature to be something more than just a warning, then uh, it is a, a feature that's kind of lacking in the vehicle. As you said, it's not not my favourite because I I I don't think um, I, I think there's a way to go in making lane assist what it really should be because it seemed to be fairly inconsistent on a lot of vehicles. And also, it does do some peculiar things to the. Uh, feel of driving the car yeah depending on which one you've got but we're certainly not at autonomous driving by any means no no (laughs) No, that's a way off by the way i am interviewing the ceo of suzuki next week sometime so that will appear in the near future if you can think of any questions in the interim that you think i should ask him by all means let me know Gentlemen, it's been lovely to wax lyrical over a range of subjects. I thank you very much for your time. Okay, no problem. Thank you, David. And that's Dean Oliver and Fred Brain, two of our experts associated with the Overdrive program, one technology, one in art. And we were talking mainly about the Suzuki S-Cross. You're listening to Overdrive. This weekend sees the running of the Bathurst 12-hour car race for glamorous cars. Mercedes, Lamborghini, BMW, Porsche and Audis, modified for racing, along with a few far lesser-known brands, will battle it out. The field includes 18 teams from six countries. With international recognition for the winner, a lot is at stake. Dealing with the logistics of a large team of people and equipment creates a mammoth task, getting it all to the track on time. The rigs they use are a work of art in terms of the technology they carry, but they are also a marketing work of art, being an important part of the team image. 
good colleague of ours, Dave White, has driven some of these big team rigs, but also is a driver for more general freight moving activities. He didn't go to Bathurst, but he joins us on the line now. G'day, David. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Where are you? West town towards Canalton today, heading towards Adelaide. Okay. And how many hours have you got to go? Oh, I think uh, I think I reckon I'll be done in about three and a half today. It's um, been a battle today with roadworks and weather. You have been a driver for a number of teams. What sort of things do a team have in a in their big B doubles that they carry around? It's a different world now. Oh uh, yeah, look. So um, compared to what I do day to day, those those combinations of race transporters are a whole different kettle of fish. So. They're custom built, pretty much custom built for every team. So each each one will be different. They fill so many roles. So they're not just a car transporter. They also transport everything they need for the garage. So if you have a look at the races on TV, you'll see they've got all their computer screens and all their signage and all their Jackson tools and even their drinks fridge. You know, that all goes on their transporter to the track. And once they're at the track and set up, the transporter then becomes a hub for drivers so there'll be like a change room for drivers they'll have um, all their technicians working out of there all their data analysts and stuff will be based in the truck so yeah they're pretty multi-purpose vehicle those ones they're also advertising when you're driving it along they have their images all on the side is that a bit different driving a vehicle like that compared to one that is basically just a freight vehicle it's definitely the glamour side of truck driving when you're driving something like that. They're a billboard for your sponsor, for your team, and everyone notices you wherever you go. So yeah, you can't hide. It's almost a bit of a celebrity job, I suppose. Everyone wants to be part of it. So people will come up and talk to you far more than normal? Oh, absolutely. A fuel stop, for example, when you're driving a race transporter, will invariably involve someone walking up having a chat, you know, whose car's there, what sort of stuff do you carry, where are you going, where have you been. It's very much a PR exercise in that role, whereas if I stop to fuel up in this truck, it's pretty well ignored by the general public. Well, let's start with that first point. That means then that the truck drivers that they have for these vehicles, like yourself, would have to be personable and approachable not just a person capable of driving a heavy rig. No, true. So the the driver of a transporter for a professional race team, they are a team member. And so they are just as important as anyone else on that team. Maybe or some would argue more so because if they don't get to where they've got to go, the rest of the team's out of a job. But between the workshop and the track, uh, the transporter driver is your number one PR person. When they get to the track, they uh, most of them would have a job on the car or related to the car. Tyres is a pretty popular one. Yeah, between the workshop and the track, they are your number one PR guy. So it takes a certain kind of person. It's an interesting point in terms of the public being able to comment on and see anyway. In the case of the race team, it's very visible, yet... The modern drivers, people are quick to pick up on faults. It doesn't look good for the team, but equally, is it hard for the drivers anyway? You're under the spotlight wherever you go. You're driving something that's 28 metres long and, and paints it up to attract as much attention as possible. So it's in the design. 
But I suppose, you know, with social media and dash cams and stuff the way it is now, you can't go anywhere without being noticed. I suppose it adds a little bit of pressure to their day. Oh, and to yours. In general, like, I mean, even in your car these days, if you make a mistake, chances are you're going to see it on social media at some point. So in terms of being a professional truck driver, I think that almost leads you to lift your game because you know that if you make a mistake, there's no hiding from it. Whereas once upon a time, you used to get away with it and pretend. A lot of people would target truck drivers for that. I'd also say that's a pretty strong element uh, needed for everyday sedan, SUVs and ute drivers as well. Just in general, because when you're driving something so big and heavy, the other thing is when something goes wrong, it goes wrong in a big way. So it's graphic and whatever. But um, yeah, I think in general, we're all under the spotlight now, aren't we really? One of the issues of a truck now in that you can listen to a wider range of music or whatever. Podcasts? Do you like podcasts? Yeah, so I'm, uh, music is my thing, um, usually. Podcasts are, are a good thing. I, I like to learn all the time. And, and if I can, if I were to sit in this tin box for nine hours a day, I might as well listen to a podcast and learn. Sort of keep the old brain ticking over. And also, I spend a lot of time on the phone to other drivers as well, just, just chewing the fat and um, keeping up with what's going on in the world. The modern car, the modern truck, has the potential at, and with digital technologies to record a lot of information. Have you noticed in your driving over the years, and you've owned trucks and run them, that there's now a much more information available on which to be as effective as possible and understanding what's happening? In transport especially, the margins are really tight. A lot of people will see a B-double roll down the road and it's all nice and shiny and, and they look at that and they go, that thing must be a money-making machine. But in reality, the, the profit margin in transport is very little. So if any information that you can get to analyse and, and identify where you can save on your running costs is invaluable. And the truck companies especially, the truck manufacturers, provides so much information um, on things like fuel burning gear selection and idle times and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, with, without it being baffling, they can give you all that information in such a way that you can break it down and go, right, this is what I need to do to save money in my business. And that's where that technology really comes into its own. I love your expression, without being baffling, because I've done some work in data collection and uh, particularly, obviously, in transport. And you can have a lot of information, but not necessarily much wisdom unless you look at it very carefully. So do you think you get good, from the company you're with now, you get good feedback from them based on the numbers they've collected? The company I work for is a small family company. Every dollar matters. They're looking at things like fuel and service costs and maintenance costs. And my job as a professional operator is to reduce that as much as I can for them and for myself. But um. Yeah, any information you can get on saving running costs is good information. Well, it's the old thing that back in those days, the truck driver was a bit more of a maverick, really. You you sent him out from the, and I say him, out from the depot and you then don't hear anything unless A, he's broken down or B, he's reached his destination. That's a, a quite a different attitude or involvement with the driver. I'm well aware of this. We're very spoiled now. 
you know, we, we can have two different fuel cards so that if you don't go past the BP, you can stop at the shell. We have a mobile phone where we can look at the maps on our phone. I don't think we realise just how much difference that sort of stuff makes. But yeah, my old man used to have a, a suitcase full of map books for the whole country and a suitcase full of cassette tapes because that's all he could play. And, you know, like, yeah, we're pretty spoiled. Dave, it's lovely to talk to you. I enjoy your company. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Anytime, David. Love a chat. And that was Dave White, a colleague whom I met through journalism, but who has an extensive practical experience in driving heavy vehicles and I think, as we heard, a wonderfully balanced approach to what they are, what they do and what we need to do and be aware of to understand their role in the community. And that was an edited version of the interview with Dave White. I'll put the full version on where he talks not only about the race team trucks, but also his reflections on the current state of the road conditions and other factors in operating a big rig. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Dave White, Fred Brain, Dean Oliver and Mark Wesley for their help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Listening.